0: Bigger is better when it comes to where rural medical patients should get their care.
1: There's two different ways to get a doctor and a patient to come together. One is to try to move the doctors to the rural locations, and the other one is to encourage the patients to travel where the doctors are located. And so then it becomes a question of saying, well, how costly, how painful is it for people to travel versus... How much extra student loan forgiveness do we need to do in order to get doctors to move to those rural places?
0: Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode we're questioning some long-held assumptions about the best ways to manage healthcare care in rural areas you may have in your mind the kindly rural doctor who serves and often visits patients throughout a wide swath of land and far-flung populations that exists but those patients often need care that local medical facilities cannot provide the prevalent solution is often that more doctors and facilities need to base themselves in those areas but does that lead to the best health care? Josh Gottlieb is an associate professor at the Harris School of Public Policy and co-director of BFI's Health Economics Research Initiative. And co-author Jonathan Dingle is an associate professor of economics at the Booth School of Business. Josh Gottlieb, Jonathan Dingle, welcome to The Pie. Thank you, Tess. Thanks so much for having us. Let's start by uh, defining the problem here, uh, at least the one that we often read about, which is the lack of access to health care in rural parts of America. Um, I was reading a piece from the Association of American Medical Colleges that said that while 20% of the country's population lives in rural communities, only 11% of its doctors practice there. And that was in 2020. What led you to look into the solutions around this problem? Let's start with you, Josh.
2: The question, test is whether it's really a problem. Lots of economic activity is concentrated in space. By that, I mean that cities exist. We have people going around and working and buying things in particular parts of the country and particular parts of the world because it is more efficient in many ways to do that. It's good to have companies near their consumers, it's good to have all of the different things that you might need for your factory or for any other economic activity that you're engaging in, all in one place. So our observation is that healthcare is just like any other economic activity. It's good to have all of it available in one place. Doctors can learn from each other. They can have the staff needed, the skilled staff they need to do different types of, of med- provide different types of medical care. And if you try to spread them all out. Then that could actually make outcomes worse.
0: Jonathan?
1: So there's this long running concern about rural access to healthcare, but we know that people can travel for healthcare. The phrase medical tourism means something, uh, but more generally, the presumption that we need to bring the doctors to the rural areas is only one of the potential solutions that is on the table. And what we're trying to do in our research is. Look at another angle on this, which is how often some rural patient is traveling to see the big city physician. We all know that happens anecdotally, uh, but our research is trying to put some numbers on this phenomenon in order for us to think you know coherently about do we want to bring patients to doctors in big cities or do we want to take doctors and move them to rural areas
0: and Josh, the traditional fix for this. Um, assuming that it's a problem, which I know you've said it probably isn't, um, but but the traditional fix has been, for example, medical schools offering specific programs to train rural doctors, other incentives to get those out, to to get them out into those areas, right? And isn't there even a like a Medicare reimbursement incentive for rural providers?
2: That's right. Policy tends to take the view that we need to bring the care to where the patients are, and. The question that our research raises is whether there is something more fundamental in the way healthcare works, the way that the hospitals and doctors and equipment and other staff work together, that makes it fundamentally hard to simply incentivize that care to move to a particular location. And we find that there is, that there is true benefit from expertise, experience, specialization that you simply can't achieve in a very small market. And so even if those incentives were made powerful enough to move a lot of care into rural areas, it's not clear you could accomplish the same things with that care that you can in a bigger market.
0: So this is where you are, you talk a lot about economies of scale, um, but as we all know, it's not just economies that scale. It's, it's connections that scale. It's learning that scales. Um, can you talk a little bit, maybe, Jonathan, about the benefits to patients, both urban and rural, to having this kind of concentrated health care? What do they get from having lots of doctors grouped in one area, specifically urban areas?
1: There's a variety of benefits to having more doctors and practitioners in the same place. I mean, it's just not realistic to think that you can have a world-class doctor in every single small town in America. These are scarce resources that we're allocating. So if you go see a doctor for a procedure, I think you're going to be much more optimistic if you know that that doctor has done that procedure dozens of times in the previous year, as opposed to being a little bit rusty because uh, they've been you know, a jack of all trades that's doing lots of different procedures. So you want to see somebody that has a lot of recent experience. And when you're in a large market with many physicians, you can divide labor amongst them. They can each specialize in different kinds of procedures so that you see somebody that really knows what they're doing. Similarly, it's it's just not realistic to say that we're going to have really expensive, you know, world-class medical equipment installed at every clinic. In America, if they're only serving, you know, a town of five or ten thousand people, uh, these are big, expensive machines that we need a lot of patients to be using them in order for it to be economical to make those investments in that kind of equipment. And so, one of the advantages is being in a big market is that you have a lot more patients that can be using that big, lumpy capital equipment, that expensive machinery. And so both the physicians and the equipment can be uh, better utilized when you're in a big market than when you're seeing just a small number of
0: patients. So a lot of what we're talking about here does seems to point to a real difference here depending on what kind of medical service a patient needs, right? And, and how that factors into these trade-offs. And in the research, you talk about the examples of you know, a a rare heart procedure versus say a colonoscopy screening. Can you walk us through that, Josh, and what you found in terms of how people make decisions about where and why they can get that kind of healthcare?
2: Everything that we've been talking about so far is a matter of degree. So for some things, the extreme specialization and having the world-class expert is important for other things it's routine it's done commonly enough that you can get the expertise you need even in a smaller market and so these forces are less powerful so i don't want to go too far in what we're saying here this is a matter of degree that that you want the benefits of concentration but you also don't want to force patients to travel for absolutely everything And so as you said, Tess, we look at colonoscopies and we look at uh, cardiac device implantation because one of them is super common, the colonoscopy. And so you can achieve a reasonable scale in every market. You just don't have to worry about going to a highly specialized place like the Mayo Clinic for your routine colonoscopy. It can be done locally. There also may be Weaker economies of scale and that kind of care. In contrast, super rare surgeries, you want to be with someone who knows what they're doing and you just can't get that scale in a smaller market. So we find that there is a lot more travel for these rare services. And this is systematic across all the different services we look at.
0: I mean, that can even be if you're in one city, a fairly large city, and you find that there's an even better expert in in another. Like I'm in Portland, I might find somebody in Seattle who's even better. So this is, as you say, very common that people do this anyway.
2: That's right. So let me give you an example from the upper Midwest. If we start out in Minot, North Dakota, we find, and this is a pretty small market, there are about 3,000 people who get care at home in our data, but 1,053 who go to Bismarck, North Dakota. So that's a bigger market. That's not too far. And then a small share of that, under 100, go even farther to the Mayo Clinic uh, in Rochester, Minnesota. I should say, we don't know for sure that it's the Mayo Clinic. We know for sure that it's Rochester, Minnesota, uh, which is where the Mayo Clinic is is located. Fair assumption. And people in Bismarck, North Dakota, we see 500 of them going to, to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and then 1,500 people from Sioux Falls, South Dakota going to Minneapolis. So exactly as you described with Your experience in Portland and Seattle, people are working their way to farther and farther markets as they need for the particular care or the particular specialty that they need to see.
0: But Jonathan, is there really anyone who is suggesting that rural areas should have this kind of specialized care uh, that we're talking about?
1: I think there's probably a wide range of views on this issue. Uh, But sometimes this discussion about, you know, the urban rural gap is conducted in terms of thinking about physicians per capita. So the number of doctors, you know, relative to the number of residents in an area. And the number of doctors per capita is 50% higher in the biggest regions than the, the smallest, least populous regions. And that's a concern people have. What we show in our research is if you look at the number of GPs, the the family medicine and internal medicine practitioners, so like the most common job title that a doctor would have, that's kind of your primary care physician, those are basically equal in terms of the number of primary care providers per resident uh, is basically the same in the big regions and the small regions. So that's not the medical resource, the kind of doctor that is unevenly distributed across space what rural folks don't have so much access to is precisely the specialists so to the extent that we're having this discussion about rural medical access yes it really is about are we you know wisely deploying these scarce resources these specialists as a society
0: yeah you mentioned this this common way that that healthcare is measured by doctors per capita That is often used as a proof point of inequity within the the system overall, right? Um, If that's not a good measurement, what's a better one?
1: Well, I think you want to look at the care that patients are actually receiving. So rather than using the presence of the doctor in the rural location to try to proxy for access, it's better to measure directly, are these rural patients getting the procedures done, what quality of service are those rural patients receiving. Once you recognize that people are able to travel across regions, when you think about what's the well-being of a resident of Minot, North Dakota, you don't want to tally the doctors in Minot, North Dakota. You want to tally the quality of the services that are being received by the patients who might live in Minot, but be traveling to Bismarck or to Sioux Falls or to Rochester.
0: All right, well, let's talk about how you did quantify that, um, how you went a, went about measuring the trade-offs here. Uh, Josh, talk me through what data set you were looking at and what you were looking for.
2: We used the Medicare data that the BFI has purchased uh, here at the University of Chicago, which contain billing records from Millions and millions of Medicare patients, one fifth of all patients on traditional Medicare. Every time they go see the doctor, the doctor sends a bill to Medicare, and Medicare collects those data and sells them to academic institutions and others. And so those data are incredibly rich. Measuring services that people that people get access to, uh, that people consume, is generally pretty hard because you don't have any physical goods that are being transported from one place to another. Right. This is a case where we can measure it because the data are originally uh, collected in order to process the bills so that Medicare can make appropriate payments to the healthcare providers. But in the process, they collect a lot of useful information. They keep track of what the procedure was that was provided. They keep track of where the patient lives and where the doctor is located or where, where the care was provided. So that gives us really rich data, and we can then basically count up how many times did patients from each region go to every other region.
0: But Jonathan, where does that reflect the quality of the outcome of that care? Because isn't that really the the end game here? You want to make sure that people are getting the care that they need and and an outcome that is that is good. How do you use these numbers to say, well, yes, they did have to go from a small town to the big city to get the care, but it worked?
1: Right. So, since we're studying all of uh, Medicare expenditure, the vast, you know, thousands and thousands of different procedures that people have done, it isn't easy to specify exactly what medical outcome you want to look at, given that we're seeing the whole gamut from, you know, these cardiac device implementations, implantations to colonoscopies. So we take the traditional economic approach, which is to assume that the consumer is always right and say, look, if somebody is traveling an extra hundred miles in order to see a doctor, that must be a better doctor because they're paying the price of having to travel a lot farther in order to receive that care. So what we do is infer the quality of service based on the choices that these patients are making. And the basic logic is when you see somebody traveling hundreds of miles to go to, say, Rochester, Minnesota, one of these places that uh, provides care for patients from all across the nation, we infer that that's a higher quality healthcare provider.
0: But couldn't it also just be that they they just don't have access to what they need closer to home. I mean, how do you know that they're going to these larger facilities because of the quality of care uh, versus that they don't have another option? And I mean, there's no real measurement for convenience here either, right?
1: So this verges on the danger of getting too technical. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But trade economists have been thinking about these kind of measurement issues. And so we've developed techniques to distinguish between uh, is it that I have no other good options locally versus Rochester, Minnesota is actually a great destination. So we don't just use the average distance traveled to the destination to say, oh, this must be a good place. Because if you're living in a remote location, uh, you know, imagine that you're in Anchorage, Alaska. Well, then whenever you travel for care, yes, you are going to travel you know, thousands of miles, but that's just a function of how far Alaska is from everywhere else. So the, the research tools that we use say it's not just simply about the number of miles covered, but how far you went relative to your other options. That's what is really revealing of quality, that you chose this location instead of some other location that was actually closer and more convenient. That's how we're inferring quality differences.
0: But something that we're also talking about here is... You know, we we talked about the, the heart procedure versus the colonoscopy, but there's also the issue of an emergency. And, you know, when you look at some of these rural areas that there's not a hospital for 200 miles, what's the answer there? Because travel certainly isn't one.
1: Right. We've been talking about the benefits of scale and having doctors in one place. But when it comes to an emergency, the benefits of being... You know, nearby dominate. Right when you're having a heart attack, the fact that there's an excellent hospital a couple hundred miles away isn't going to be uh, much comfort to you. No. So it 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 turns out that emergencies are really good at illustrating the benefit of being proximate to the physician, uh, but the vast majority of expenditure in the U.S. healthcare system is not on those kind of emergencies. So the emergencies are really good at illustrating the trade-off here. There is a benefit to putting the doctors close to the patients when, you know, your survival probability is a matter of how quickly you get to that physician. Uh, but that's really, you know, not the typical medical procedure if you look at what is driving American healthcare.
0: So again, when we're talking about trade-offs here, it, it really is that, yes, it it may be less convenient for those rural patients to to travel to get care, but when they do so they have access to better care than they would have if that care were more spread out and localized
2: that's exactly right so the trade off here is that if you were to say we're going to increase the subsidies for locating care in rural areas we're going to put a huge program in place to try to get physicians per capita equalized or or more equalized than it is right now you would be taking some scale away from the biggest markets. You'd be taking some physicians away from the places where they can do the most specialization and get the most experience at their particular specialty, at their particular task, and reduce the quality of care for everybody.
0: What does that say about how we're addressing the rural healthcare issue today? Should we be helping subsidize the the travel that people are doing instead of subsidizing sending doctors out to rural areas?
1: Yeah, I think what our research points out is that policymakers face a pretty rich menu of possible solutions, and they come with a variety of trade-offs. So the most fundamental trade-off that we've put on the table is, is there's two different ways to get a doctor and a patient to come together. One is to try to move the doctors to the rural locations, and the other one is to encourage the patients to travel where the doctors are located. And so then it becomes a question of saying, well, how costly, how painful is it for people to travel versus how you know much extra student loan forgiveness do we need to do in order to get doctors to move to those rural places so that's the fundamental trade off um, but you can also say if we're going to be more generous with our you know payments to doctors, where would we want to spend the money and it partly depends on who you're particularly trying to benefit so if you were thinking about the well being of all patients on Medicare nationwide, what the numbers in our study suggest is that you would get the biggest bang for your buck by being more generous with government spending uh, in the big markets so that are these kind of centers of excellence that we've been talking about that serve patients coming from uh, wide geographic uh, areas. But if you're particularly concerned about, say, uh, lower socioeconomic status, Uh, Medicare patients. That population is living in uh, smaller towns and rural locations. And so then you might find it worthwhile to subsidize moving the doctors to those places. And what our research can quantify is sort of how much you're going to be reducing the quality of medical care that other parts of the population who do live in the big cities are experiencing.
0: Well, you just kind of touched on socioeconomics as a factor here. Uh, Is that different, more important, less important than what we've been talking about, which is a more an urban-rural divide?
1: So one of the things that we find is that your proclivity to travel long distance to get higher quality health care depends on your socioeconomic status. So In the data, we know the zip code where the patient resides. So we use the uh, average household income in the place that you live as a proxy for your socioeconomic status. And what we document is that people that live in these lower income zip codes are less likely to travel long distance to receive medical care. So when we create you know, these centers of excellence. So when we talk about Boston being a place that has really great doctors and hospitals and that people travel long distance to see, uh, it's going to be tilted towards, if we're talking about people coming, you know, from the middle of the country, a high income patient from the Midwest is more likely to travel to Boston than a low income patient from the Midwest. So there are these distributional concerns in terms of uh, travels being used Uh, more by these uh, higher income patients.
0: And finally, um, I'm curious, and you both may not want to answer this because it's not within the scope of your research, but uh, how do you think the pandemic might have either altered or bolstered these findings? You know, we all heard plenty of stories about hospitals at and exceeding capacity in both large urban areas and smaller rural towns. Is it hard to say because it was such an outlier event, or could we learn something from that about doctor placement in America?
2: So the pandemic is relevant in a few different ways for this. First, one thing that happened was Medicare relaxed its rules about when it would cover telehealth. So it was much more willing to pay for for telemedicine, uh, meaning care that's delivered by phone or over the computer. And that could potentially be an important mechanism for reducing travel costs. It's a lot easier to go visit a faraway specialist if you can just log on to your computer and or FaceTime and do that. And so there may be real policy levers for reducing these travel costs and thereby ameliorating these trade-offs, make the trade-off a little bit less sharp because you can get the benefits of scale while also improving access. Second thing the pandemic did, as you said, uh, we had some major staffing problems. So the pandemic definitely reshaped markets in important ways, but also created opportunities for, for us to improve care delivery in the future.
1: Yeah, I'd echo that. I mean, the pandemic was a shock to almost all aspects of economic life. Medicine is one of these areas where there's a lot of promise, although, of course, weather It actually delivers, uh, depends on a lot of the details. And I guess more broadly thinking about, you know, policymakers and and what we should be doing, policymakers do face these tough trade-offs. And so there's not one right answer, but surely recognizing the importance of travel by patients, as we've documented our research, means that policymakers should not introduce impediments or try to discourage travel. And so if we can think about, you know, encouraging telemedicine, uh, and encouraging travel, that seems like a way that we could try to turn this into something that benefits everybody.
0: All right, Jonathan Dingle, Joshua Gottlieb, thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. it
1: great to talk with you, Tess. Thank you very much.
0: The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.